Welcome to the Onyx Report, a program that critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society. I'm Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male advocate, and black male studies scholar. In the program, we examine current events while engaging concepts ranging from institutionalized anti-black misandry to gynocentrism from a black masculinist perspective. Our goal is to remind people of black men's humanity. Call in after a half hour to the show at 310-928-7733. All right. Welcome, people, back to the Onyx Report. We just uh, took a little break earlier this month, um, had to attend some uh, beginning of the year on-campus events, but we are back in action. Good to be back. Um, greetings for those who are coming in through Interlight Radio directly, uh, those who are coming through my website. Um, uh, and it is a newly updated website, so uh, keep an eye on it at thassanjohnson.com. And those who are coming through YouTube, um, please subscribe, hit the notification bell, uh, and support the channel. Um, we are back this week, September 18th, talking a little bit about um, some of the things that are that are in the news, some of the, the not-so-overt things that may be happening. And, of course, we have a special guest that I will introduce in a moment. Uh, as you all know, I like to kind of start with just some, some, some blurbs from the news that relate uh, to black men in one way, shape, or form, and may or may not come up in the course of the conversation or if anyone calls in, but I like to kind of give a frame or at least get, give some some sense of what's going on in the world um, when the show comes on, some of the things that hit. So some of you who are on my Facebook or Twitter accounts may see some of the things I've posted, and you'll you probably be familiar with some of the things I'm about to mention. Uh, the first thing I wanted to bring up is uh, one of the latest articles from Newsweek.com that talks about um, black identity extremism and relates it, in fact, says it's more dangerous than al-Qaeda. Um, this relates to black men in particular because, to my knowledge, the only person arrested as a black identity extremist uh, was a Texas man named Rakim Balogun. Um, and so in that, it kind of gives us a sense of how black identity extremism is being defined and so far, that definition seems to apply to justifying politicized black males, incarceration and or death. Um, on another note, we have a case of hair discrimination to a young Texas boy. You can find this on www.wapt.com. Look up the article. School official says boy's hair doesn't follow dress code and he must cut it or wear dress. Um, now, I bring this up because I've been told directly that uh, men and boys, uh, black men and boys don't engage, don't experience hair discrimination of any sort. And so I've done a blog piece about this ranging from everything from beards to hair um, uh, and the ways in which black males have experienced this going back generations, uh, especially in the workplace. So uh, that these cases are still coming up is important. Also, an article on in NBC News on black unemployment that um, – that uh, kind of shows us the black unemployment rate has fallen to 5.5%, uh, saying that this is negative development for black citizens, but it does not go into detail about black men in particular, whose unemployment rates range from 40 to 50% um, in uh, over 35 major cities. So it, it, the experience of unemployment in regard to black men uh, takes on a whole new dimension uh, when we go through the research a little bit. So just to kind of put that on the table, um, and there are never, there's never enough time to cover 
all of these cases, but I try to shine some light on some of them. There's a case in Las Vegas of a black male who was stopped by police over a bike light and died in custody. Um, less than an hour after being stopped, um, he was taken to the ground, handcuffed, and told the officers that he couldn't breathe, much like Eric Gardner, and we still, uh, and he still nonetheless passed. Um, another case to look at, um, drug convictions overturned for 10 black men, framed by Chicago Police Sergeant, Sergeant Ronald Watts. Uh, this would lead to 63 exonerations just at the hands of one police officer. So you can imagine if this is happening across the country, how many black men have been incarcerated uh, or killed behind charges that were erroneous from the beginning. Um, so a case to look at, that's on blackmainstreet.net. Um, also, we have a case of a young woman who apparently in um, Pleasant Grove, Alabama, uh, Ashley Mack, 33 years old, is charged with second-degree arson, third-degree burglary, burglary for burning down her ex-boyfriend's house. He apparently broke up with her, and she decided to burn down his home. So that is the second case that I've read like that in the last two shows, um, and that may warrant some dialogue uh, as far as that. Lastly, California State Assembly unanimously passes bill to allow college athletes to profit from endorsements. This, of course, directly impacts black males who are in college uh, and playing sports, uh, often uh, are the means by which universities raise a great deal of funds, but up to now have not been able to really legally um, benefit from their efforts. Now, um, again, that might come up later in the discussion, but at, it just gives me a, a chance to kind of frame what black male life looks like uh, in some capacity. I'm by no means suggesting that that list of articles is exhaustive, but merely to kind of give you a frame of the kind of things that I see happening and that black men endure. Um, to discuss black men in more detail in relation to his work, I, I'm happy to introduce uh, on, on the Onyx Report uh, Dr. Stephen Niffley, um, scholar who received uh, a certificate in strategic healthcare from Cornell University in 2018, 2017, had his master's in public administration from Wright State University, 2013, had his PsyD from Spalding University, um, uh, master's in clinical psychology from Spalding in 2010, and a BS in psychology in 2008 at the University of Louisville. Uh, he has, he's currently teaching at Spalding University in the School of Professional Psychology, and if I'm not mistaken, is Associate Director of the Center for Behavioral Health. Um, the brother is, is quite prolific. He has several texts. It looks like at least two that might be in press at the moment, Black Males in the Criminal Justice System, um, and Extended Case Studies in Program Evaluation, Designing and Implementing Effective Evaluations. Uh, his 2017 text, Out of KOS, Knowledge of Self, Black Masculinity, Psychopathology, and Treatment. Um, his 2014 text, Knowledge of Self, Understanding the Mind of the Black Male. And his 2013 text, The Black Man's Guide to Graduate, uh, Graduate School. Um, he also has a very prominent blog that I'm going to read some pieces off of later, some titles that I think will definitely intrigue you, and did a brilliant TED Talk with Julia Williams uh, entitled Meeting in the Middle in 2017. So I'd like to welcome you, Dr. Niffley, to the Onyx Report. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. No, thank you for coming, man. Um, as people know at this point, what I like to do is showcase uh, people who have prioritized in their work. 
the lives of black men and boys and seek to humanize them, or at least I should say, engage them as human beings, um, where we don't take on myth as the primary motivation for our explanations and, 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 and modes of analyses. And we look to actually explore what's going on in the lives of black males, um, not engaging them as monsters or stereotypes, but as human beings. Uh, this is how I roughly define black masculinism as it pertains to research. You know, how, how do we actually engage in research that is done from a humanistic standpoint? And by that logic, um, I've asked you to be on the show because I see your work as positioning you as that type of person. Am I incorrect or how would you frame person? Am I incorrect or how would you frame that? Uh, I certainly do uh, place at the center of my research and my clinical work, uh, the lived experience of black males. Mm -hmm. Now, what I would like to do is actually learn a little bit about you because I want to showcase your work and I want people to know, you know what you're doing, but I also want them to understand why. If you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing and, and how, if at all, it contributed to your, your research and where you decided to take that. Sure. It, um, my lived experience most certainly influenced uh, the person that I am now, as well as my motivation to, to do the things that I'm doing in terms of my scholarship and my clinical practice. Uh, so I was uh, raised in a, a single parent home. Uh, my parents divorced when I was seven years old. Uh, from that time on uh, until I left my mother's home, I was considered the man of the house, mm -hmm. uh, which meant that I was oftentimes responsible for, um, you know, my brother and, and his upbringing and making sure that everything was okay with him. And so there was this kind of pseudo promotion uh, that happened within my home to where I wasn't necessarily a child, but also wasn't a, a man per se, but was still trying to balance both roles at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up uh, in a space where uh, black males weren't oftentimes celebrated and uh, weren't necessarily seen as, as successful. Uh, and so that really limited my perception of what I could be, uh, especially as a youth. I just assumed, similar to many of my cousins and many other people that were around me, that uh, the only space that I could exist in was in the sports or entertainment field. Um, mm-hmm. So because of that, you know, I, I didn't put forth all the effort that I could have uh, in terms of my studies. I actually got very lucky getting into uh, into the University of Louisville specifically uh, because I actually didn't apply to school uh, until mm. the semester, until the Friday before school started. Um, and I just got lucky enough that someone uh, have faith in me and was willing to invest in me to to give me a scholarship and to uh, admit me into the University of Louisville. Uh, but because I was still carrying those narratives around what my options were, what my choices were as a black man and as a black male, I didn't put forth my full effort still because I still had no reference for what academic success looked like for black males because it wasn't something that I saw often uh, in my spaces. So I actually ended up losing that scholarship. Now let me uh, let me let me let me catch up to you a minute. Now where are you from? Uh, so I, I say I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, because that's the place that I've lived the longest. Mm, okay. Uh, but you know when you when you live in poverty and and do all those types of things, you you move around a lot. Uh, right. And so right. uh, I've lived all over the Midwest uh, for the most part, um, and ended up going to high school in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Okay. 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 And so you now you were also an athlete. Is that correct? 
I, I played uh, football and track uh, in I, high school. And did 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 mentorship uh, or relationships with other black men uh, help with that process, especially as you transition into higher education? Because I want you to continue your story. I just kind of wanted sure. to get some things in there because I just uh, I saw this uh, post or this article earlier today about Allen Iverson crediting coach John Thompson for saving his life. And I know mm -hmm. me myself, I can say the same thing as far as uh, my academic work. I had no plans to be an academic until I met Dr. William Little, who, who was chair of Africana Studies at Dominguez Hills. And he was the first uh, you know, professor teacher I'd ever had that not only saw potential in me, but saw graduate potential. Mm -hmm. And whereas I was planning to just you know, go find any work I could, he literally grabbed me by the neck and, 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 and he had to explain what graduate school was. So that's how little I prepared. I, I was about to graduate undergrad and still didn't really know much about graduate school. And he had to snatch me, walk me through it um, and push me in it. And the next thing I knew because of him, I was doing a master's. Did any type of mentorship or support like that help you in, in that period of your life? Uh, so um, I met my first uh, black male doctor, Vinny Khan, my sophomore year of college. Mm. Uh, and he actually ended up, he was a psychologist. And I, I searched for that man and, and, you know, hunted him down and said that he was going to be my mentor. And he was <laughs> the one that helped. I know I, I did. I'm, if I really want something, I'm, I'm going to go for it because uh, that's just kind of how I am as a person. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, he set me on the direction. He opened the path uh, to let me know that psychology and being a psychologist was something that I could accomplish as a black man. Cause there just isn't a lot of psychologists in our field that are black males. Uh, about a half a percent of all psychologists are black males. And so the statistical probability of meeting someone like him in the same city uh, was improbable. Uh, and so we were meant to be in that space and he was meant to be there to, to mentor me. Uh, and to show me what I could be. Okay. And and this was, now you mentioned that you, you kind of fell short in terms of ac academic study. Where was this in the time frame? Sure. So this was my uh, freshman year of, of college. Mm -hmm. um, you needed to maintain a certain GPA in order to, in order to keep your full ride to U of L. And I, I was well below that. Um, it actually ended up having to reapply for that scholarship and for my sophomore year, was only given half of it. And so I didn't mm. to, to come up with the other half. And then once I, you know, regained it, um, I, I was off to the races. I, you know, maintained a 3.5 GPA for the rest of my time there. Mm -hmm. uh, but really, it was a combination of surrounding myself with these black male role models. Because, uh, like, I really immersed myself uh, in finding these guys my sophomore year running into to Dr. Chapman, uh, who is the psychologist that I'm referring to, they really kind of put me on this trajectory to say that I could do something different, that this is a path that I could see moving forward. Mm -hmm. Okay. So graduate school, what made you decide to go? What made you, what, what, what really made you decide to do this type of research and tell us more, tell us actually what type of research you do. Sure. So um, my area of research falls into three main buckets at this point, because um, I, I believe in the power of three. Uh, and so it's um, uh, black males and mental health, 
black males in the criminal justice system and black males in the treatment of racial trauma. And so I'm always trying to find ways to produce research and to engage in clinical work in those areas. Uh, how I fell into this, this field of psychology, um, I worked at a, a foster home, uh, a group home uh, as part of my senior and first year of graduate school. And what I noticed is that many of the kids there were, were, were black males. Uh, you know, this was a foster home. This was a group home uh, where the kids ranged uh, from, uh, you know, 10 to 12 years old uh, at the, at least the unit that I was working at. And uh, black males learn how to be black males in relation to others. And what I found for a lot of these uh, young men is that they had no one to relate to. And so they were really hungry just to see someone that looked like them mm. that presumably was doing something positive. Uh, and so oftentimes they would ask me if, if I could take them home, uh, if I could be some sort yes. of mentor for them uh, yes. and all those things. Uh, but I'm, you know, I was a young guy at that time. I was still trying to figure out life for myself and I definitely couldn't fit 20 kids into my, uh, you know, 500 square foot apartment. It just wasn't going to work. Right. Right. And so, and what I realized also is that these kids have been traumatized. These kids were carrying around uh, heavy experiences that they had no one to talk to because no one knew how to relate to them. Absolutely. And so I decided at that point that uh, I needed to go back to school in order to develop the skills needed to help them. And that I needed to focus my efforts on, on the healing process because one of the things I noticed about these young men is one of the reasons why they were hurting was also because they saw limited choices and options for what their black masculinity masculinity expression looked like. They just assumed that society had told them that they were dumb, deviant, and dangerous, mm -hmm. and that that's all that they could be. And I was trying to find my best uh, way to communicate that they could do something different, that they had options for flexibility and choice, uh, right. but I, I lacked the words and skills to be able to offer that. And so I knew I needed to go to graduate school to get that training. And that is that is so many black men's experiences that I've talked to that have gone into teaching, gone into counseling, gone into administrative work at schools where they're still helping and working with kids. It's the same kind of dynamic. I mean, I know even for me, um, I, I lived in Philadelphia for a while and I worked at a nonprofit there. And my job was was basically teaching a GED class for uh, 14 to 17 year old black males who were court ordered to be there and these were some of the roughest dudes you, you you can meet at that age range and yet once you got to know them or once i got to know them uh they were asking me the same kind of things you know could they go home with me you know could, could, because they had no other support mechanisms and and the stories that they would tell were just heart-wrenching i mean i had one young man who's he was 14 and he was taking care of his mother who was bedridden um, with AIDS and he was the only one doing it and couldn't find any support. Other young men in that program, at least a few of them had been sexually violated by men and women and had mm -hmm. no one to talk to, you know, um, actually taught uh, in Compton Unified School District for a few years as well before I started my doctorate. And it was the same kind of dynamic. And so, you know, what you're saying about the presence of black men, especially when it comes to working with boys, it's so imperative that they actually be able to see themselves in you and have somebody willing to sit down with them because that's not a common thing. It's not, it, and it wasn't in my education either. So that's incredibly poignant. Um, how did that, that shape what you decided to end up doing? Well, I, I realized that I needed to go where the, the need was. Um, 
even in my own graduate training, when I would talk with my colleagues or even when I'm working with folks now, the only time that folks ever want to intersect with the black male experience and to seek to be a part of the healing process is when they're criminally justice involved. And mm-hmm. that's certainly a place where we need to be. But there are black males that are out there that are not affiliated with that system that could use our help as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's problematic to me to think that the only time that we're willing to work with black males is when they're in cages. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted something different from that. Well, tell me, did you have any challenges when you decided, okay, I'm going to do this work with and for, for and on black males? What, what kind of challenges, if any, did you face? Uh, well, it's a it's a, a lonely field. Um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, black male psychologists out there, and so that means that there's not a lot of black people or just people in general that are focusing on understanding the black lived experience, the black male lived experience, and how we can use that as a method to enhance their mental health, enhance their well being, and all those things. And so, what that what ends up happening is that. Um, uh, you know, resources aren't t- oftentimes aren't there or there's this feeling of being overwhelmed because mm-hmm. there's no one else doing the work. And so they have to come to you. Uh, but if you're the only person, uh, then that poses a challenge because you can't treat, you can't research, you can't do it all, right. uh, even if the expectation is that you can. No, and that's that's real. That's that definitely. And that happens on university campuses as well, where black faculty have a difficult time keeping up in terms of publications and other types of requirements because they're doing so much off the clock work with black students, especially black male students who may be, you know, real far behind in terms of uh, being in the environment they're in. So that definitely has an impact. What now you also do therapy or conduct therapy. Is that true? Or how does that work? Yeah, yes, that, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. How, what are you finding that the black males that you work with, what kinds of issues do you tend to see at the forefront more often? Sure. So I'm a, a child psychologist by training. And, and so the, the young men and males that I've worked with, it oftentimes is a, um, uh, it's a, um, an onion process, if you will. Uh, all the black males that are referred to me or have been referred to me have all been referred for anger issues. Mm. Um, and uh, I believe that anger is a secondary emotion, which means that there's always something underneath uh, that needs to be touched and uh, addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one is willing to take the time to say to look past the anger and to see the sadness or the anxiety or the grief or the loneliness or these other emotions that these young men and males are experiencing. And so part of my work is to help them to kind of uh, go beneath the surface and explore those emotions that are oftentimes not safe mm. for them to express out in the world. Uh, a black man just can't, they can't be sad. Um, and if they are angry, it's a double-edged sword because it's expected of them, but it can also lead to their demise as well. Can you expound on that? Sure. So um, on on the football field, uh, you are rewarded for being as physically aggressive as you can be. You know, I remember mm-hmm. when I was playing football, the, the intent was to lay that man out, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you would get kudos uh, if you knocked the wind out of somebody. That was what you intended to do. Mm-hmm. But society has said that uh, we expect that same type of behavior all the time for you because we see you as this dangerous 
scary black men. But we're only going to reward you in this space in terms of the football field or some sports arena in order for that to happen. However, there's spaces in life where um, we then perceive the same type of behaviors from black males and other spaces and then punish them because of that. If I think about uh, the school system, for example, uh, black boys and, and black males are overrepresented in all aspects of the disciplinary process. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with how they perceive one's um, uh, aggressive or assertive nature. Uh, mm-hmm. So in one space, a black male is rewarded for being aggressive. In another space, uh, even if he isn't being aggressive, it's seen as such, and then he's punished because of that. Absolutely. Which leads to the confusing existence for a lot of our black males. Mm-hmm. And no, definitely. I, I, in in um, in my work, I, I refer to what I call the promotion-demotion thesis, and it has to do with the ways black males are perceived in, in K through 12. And what I've you know found in that dynamic is that you're absolutely right. They're rewarded in very key contexts, you know, gladiator contexts where, you know, their aggressiveness is supported and, 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 and really almost kind of profited off of depending on the type of institution they're in. But when it comes to the classroom, there's an entirely different dynamic and they are overwhelmingly pushed into special, special education over behavioral issues, not even academic performance. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and it tends to be the black males that can code switch that that manage to you know continue on but if if not uh we tend to find black males especially if they're not in athletics demoted or or pushed out of the school system altogether and so i, I that process in and of itself impacts really their permanent life chances their permanent life opportunities just in that k through 12 dynamic um i mean i tell I tell people this quite readily my son uh, in his second week of kindergarten they tried to put him into special education simply on the basis of his behavior. Um, and then, you know, when I didn't allow for it within the next two years, he was the top two, uh, one of the top two uh, students in each class he was in first and second grade and beyond, but without someone to advocate for him, you know, at the hands of teachers who see him as nothing more than a stereotype, you know, we see where, the, where that kind of goes. Now you deal with psychopathology in your work. Is that what it is? Yes. So, um, just just mental health issues. Uh huh. Yeah. Can Can you tell us a little bit about the mental health issues that you write about most frequently? Psychopathology being one, and and some of the others. What What are you finding? So, um, specifically in my work with black males, uh, the, the two, the three main issues that are coming up for for our young men and males relate to depression anxiety and the experience of racial trauma. Those are kind of the three mental health areas that I focus on uh, because that's what I believe is underneath all of this uh, aggressive anger related things that folks are perceiving from our our young men and males uh, is that they are uh, really just sad uh, and and anxious about the world that they live in. Um, uh, They are depressed because society has told them that they that there's only certain ways that they could be in the world mm-hmm. but then I'll sometimes see these examples and, and wonder if there's more that they're supposed to be doing and more that they're supposed to be capable of and then there's anxiety that black males face because they are um, forced they are told that they must endorse all these 
um, aggressive ways of being in the world, um, but also knowing that that comes at a cost. And so mm. there's anxiety around the conflict that those young folks experience, uh, knowing that they have to, they feel like they have to do these things, but mm. knowing that there's a, a high cost associated with it. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, in the field of psychology, we know there's a long history in regard to how black people in general and black males in particular have been perceived. Um, has that been, has the, how has that history, uh, whether we're talking about experimentation on black males, whether we're talking about purposeful misdiagnosis, you know, that history in and of itself, how has that affected you working in the, in that field uh, in trying to help people? Sure. So it, we could take it all the way back to 1853 uh, when uh, Samuel Cartwright came out with his diagnosis of uh, drapetomania, which essentially referred to this intense desire to be free because they couldn't mm -hmm. explain why all these slaves just wanted to run away from the plantation. They just thought that right. these folks should be happy and all of that. And so from the 1850s on, there's been this constant pathologizing of the black experience, specifically the black male experience in this context, um, you know, from uh, drapetomania to protest psychosis, uh, all these things where black folks have been attempting to fight for their rights to have their humanity seen has been pathologized in a lot of ways. And so my goal in my work is to um, help black folks to, to see their humanity and to know that that won't be pathologized in the space. Um, I had an opportunity to, to go to South Africa and uh, one of the greetings that folks from uh, the Zulu uh, people uh, offer each other is something called Sawabona. And what uh -huh. Sawabona means uh, is that I see you. And so uh -huh. whenever folks greet the, each other over there, they're acknowledging each other's humanity and their uh, right to exist in the space. And so whenever I'm working with black males in therapy, I'm also trying to find ways for them to recognize their humanity and for them to know that I see their humanity in the space and will offer that solid bone concept to them. Mm -hmm. And when you employed that, did you notice a difference in the response? Yeah. So uh, folks that are oftentimes described as resistant or conduct disordered or having behavioral challenges or things like that respond different when you say, I see you as a human being. Mm. Uh, that leads to a, a different perception that they have of themselves. And they also, the perception that they have of folks that look like them as well. And you're talking about something in terms of not being perceived as a human being that can seem all encompassing, whether you're talking about media, whether you're even talking about the environment within families where black males are either not perceived or treated or made to feel like they're not even a part of the human experience. That, that becomes so pervasive and it's reinforced in so many areas um, that it, 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 you know, I'm curious more about what the long-term impact of that is. And one of the things I notice with the students I work with is, you know, with black males, there's an idea that they're not going to be helped and they stop, stop seeking it out. And I know I'm guilty of this myself, you know, um, and sometimes in very casual everyday situations, like for example, um, you know, I got a speeding ticket not long ago and I, a, a, you know, a colleague of mine, she was saying that, oh yeah, well, you know, when I get pulled over, I at least talk to them and see if I can talk my way out of it. And she, you know, told me she talked her way out of a few tickets. 
it never crossed my mind to ask to to not be ticketed <laughs> to ask to to mm. to be perceived differently or given a break it never crossed my mind to do so and when i've tried it it's never worked so so i'm curious about you know with this kind of pervasive inhumanity that can affect micro you know situations or macro situations how do you apply sawabona to that and 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 are you trying to find ways to spread that treatment so that it's reinforced in other areas uh that people engage in yeah so i i think at the the most basic level um our first goal is always to help black males to rediscover their own humanity. I mean, you know, if you look on the the media, you look on TV, there's constant displays of uh, black masculinity that's very limited in nature that says that, you know, you can only exist as a black male in this box. And so mm. the first thing I'm always trying to do with the, the black males that I work with is to say that that black is to say that that box is, uh, is, is a fallacy. It's not something that you necessarily have to exist in. It's, it's paper lines that you can step out of if you so choose. Mm. And by choosing that, you reclaim the humanity that's been taken from you in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and so that's part of the work that we do is to really help folks to rediscover that humanity that's a part, that has always been a part of who they are, uh, but has been taken away from them uh, in various contexts from uh, their, their freedom, uh, from their perception of themselves and the folks that look like them, from the perception that they have of their capabilities in terms of being able to do things other than sports and entertainment, uh, just being able to just do more and to have more choices. Uh, as a child psychologist, uh, one of the things that we teach parents is this idea of forced choice. Because when you're working with kids, kids have a really hard time making decisions about things. And so you could be standing in line all day trying to get a kid to decide if he wants a Snickers or a Milky Way. Mm. But what you can do is you can say e either you can have this one or you can have this one. And so um, black males have also experienced that, too, at the higher social level where folks have said either you could be this type of black male or you could be this type of black male. And mm -hmm. that's that's problematic because that's limiting their humanity already. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's and it, 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 again, if it's reinforced in different areas over over long periods of time, it, it definitely must have a cumulative effect. Uh, is that so? Yes, that's so um, some stats that really stand out to me are around um, the race of suicide for black males and the race of depression and the rates of depression for black males. Mm. Uh, so suicide is now a third leading cause of death uh, for black males between the ages of 15 and 24. Mm. Uh, there was a study that was done that examined the last 1500 deaths uh, by suicide for kids ages 6 to 12. And what they found is that 36% of those were black males. Mm -hmm. uh, the rate of depression for black males has quadrupled in the last 20 years. And so we're experiencing a lot of black males in this day and age that are depressed, sad, hopeless, and feel like there's no other way to continue living their lives and then thus end them. Uh, and so like, I think that's the cumulative effect of mm -hmm. constantly having your humanity questioned uh, and your experience as a black being denied. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to talk to you, uh, mention a few of the things that you are working on and kind of get your your insight on that. Now, first, I wanted to, one of the things I was really, um, you know, happy to see you did your dissertation work 
on black males. I mean, the title of your dissertation was Ethnic Racial Identity Development and Its Effect on Psychological Well-Being in African-American Males. And from there, you know, I, I mentioned a couple of a number of the texts that you've written. I'm particularly um, intrigued by the, the guide to graduate school. I wish I wish you'd have wrote that in, in 2000. <laughs> I could <laughs> I could have benefited from that one. So you, I don't know why you took so long, but I appreciate <laughs> that you did it. Um, but also, you have a blog on your website. Your website is drstephenniffleyjr.com. And on the blog, there are a couple that you have some 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 blog entries that I think are intriguing. I'm only going to read a few, but I sure. wanted people to get a feel for the kind of work you're doing. So um, one is how to encourage black males to go to therapy. Uh, top 10 affirmations black males need to hear daily. Raising black sons. The top four challenges facing black males in the criminal system, uh, criminal justice system. The top four challenges facing black males, period. Three things to know about black males and suicide. Top three reasons black people should go to therapy. And then the top five reasons black people don't go to therapy. What led you to start the blog and what is kind of guiding why you do it? So uh, I believe that one of the ways that we can reclaim black male humanity is by offering a differing narrative and then equipping those folks that love black males uh, with the, the tools that they need to be able to have these challenging conversations with those black males that are in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I needed to create a space where we can have that dialogue, where we could talk about those challenging things related to why don't black males go to therapy? What are some things that black males need from us? What are the challenges that black males are facing uh, from this psychological perspective? Because uh, oftentimes we, we kind of have a, a general ideal of maybe what the challenges are, uh, but we don't have like the specific nuances to really like highlight, well, what are the, the specific challenges that those folks are facing? And then also thinking through, well, what do I say to a black male that's experiencing these things? I, I think that's also been a part of the conversation that's been missing mm -hmm. um, is that I, as a person that loves black men, that wants to see them be successful, what do I, how do I communicate that to them and what things do I offer them in terms of support, skills, affirmations, et cetera. And so I wanted to create a space where we were able to do that uh, for black men and for black males. And that's incredibly important because one of the things that people don't recognize is that definitions of black manhood change over time. And the expectations, the social expectations also change. And many of those expectations are not necessarily authored by black men. Um, so if we talk about, say, you know, the baby boomer generation, um, or, or even the greatest generation, the idea of black manhood at that time, especially in regard to the family, was far more around provisioning, right, around mm -hmm. playing certain roles that support the family. But, you know, really after the 1970s and especially the 1980s, the expectation is now a certain type of emotional presence, a certain type yes. of engagement. Now, with that, you know, there's an assumption that, you know, black males are making this transition, but these are often expectations imposed from outside. They're not necessarily authored by black men themselves. And so black men are, are, are engaged. They're expected to do things They're you know, and many are, but there's this shift in that expectation. And these expectations continue to shift over time. Now, some of the deep seated expe expectations that are materially based about what, what roles black men should be able to, you know, provide in a family, 
really come up under scrutiny when you look at some of the data I even, I've even already mentioned in terms of unemployment. You got rates of 40 to 50 percent unemployment in over 35 major cities. Um, performances of you know provisioning take on a whole new meaning. So with that in mind about how expectations change, uh, what is it that you recommend first for people who have expectations of black men? And then secondly, what what do you say to black men themselves who are grappling with trying to keep up with these different definitions? Sure. So I guess the folks that are thinking through these expectations, it's always helpful to critically analyze like, well, where do these expectations come from? Is that mm -hmm. is this within a community or is it without? Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, is this um, is this an expectation that that comes with um, skills and abilities? You know, mm -hmm. like 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 is, is there some sort of training, some sort of experience that black males are getting that helps them to achieve and accomplish these roles? You know, you can't expect folks to accomplish uh, building a house with no tools. And in a lot of ways, that's that's kind of what we're offering to black males is that they need to, to be in these certain spaces, act in these certain ways, but we're not giving them the tools that they need in order to do that. And what I would offer to black males specifically is be able to say, you know, uh, it, to, to validate and affirm how much difficult that must be to have these expectations, but then to know, um, but then to offer up that we under, it makes sense that you're struggling with these things because no one is giving you the tools or the skills in order to accomplish these roles. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're expected to be the provider in your home, but you know, no one is giving you job training, uh, you know, you have all these educational cards that are stacked against you, all those types of things, it must be very challenging to accomplish that. Um, and so just kind of knowing those things. And, and as far as outside expectations from others, um, is that is that something that you hear about in your research or hear about in, when you're actually engaging uh, black males, the pressure, the social pressure of those, meeting those expectations? Yeah, so I just had a, a conversation with some folks today where they were talking about some uh, young males that are, are involved in um, – and, and, and selling drugs and uh, one of the things that those uh, that the guy said is that well you know people expect us to provide in our homes and this is the only way that I know how to and so mm -hmm. either you have to give me different ways that will help to meet the needs of my family or, or get out of my way and allow me to do the things I need to do in order to provide um, and, and until we offer up a, a, some alternative perspectives um, it, it makes sense why young men and males would go those routes mm -hmm. for practical reasons we actually uh we have a caller um so caller uh please uh state your name and tell us where you're from rosa campson and i'm from detroit okay. and i have uh two questions uh the first question is um a lot of our children um that attend uh public school and receive uh information on history uh, really don't uh, receive um, good information about the history of Africa, uh, let alone the history of African Americans. Uh, in your interactions with um, our young uh, boys uh, and, I guess, adolescent boys, what role does uh, introducing them to their history uh, play in your interactions? And my second question is, 
Um, I know that most universities where we matriculate to obtain a, a master's or any degree, Ph.D., what, what have you, uh, do not um, address the issue of how do you uh, interact with uh, African Americans uh, that's mm. relevant to African Americans. Uh, I'm in the health field, and I'm fully aware of uh, this total lack of information that uh, universities are well known for. You know, uh, there are clear differences, not only in the mental issues that uh, one would encounter among African Americans, but health issues as well. Okay. So my question is, how? What are you doing to reach out to other? black therapists that uh, are working with our children. Is there an organization that you founded or you belong to? Because a lot of professionals, black professionals, need to be educated themselves in terms of these issues that you're discussing. And they need also the skills and the knowledge uh, given to them as to how they approach it and, and address it so beautifully like you're doing currently. Thank well, that's you. two excellent questions. Thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll answer them um, um, off the air. But go ahead, uh, Dr. Nifley, tell us what you think. Sure. Um, so um, in, in regards to the first question, um, I think it's always helpful to remember, and this is something that folks should always uh, call me out on and call us all out on, is when we start referring to black history from slavery on, you know, like that's our, our, our first mistake is that we forget that, you know, there was a whole history that happened for us prior to us being slaves here in America. Uh, and that's something that we need to embrace and address, you know, folks that are, are Pan-African in nature, uh, that's part of their philosophy. Folks that take the African-centered, Afrocentric perspective, that's part of their philosophy as well. And so I think the first thing that we could do is just say that there was an entire continent of things that were going on that influenced world uh, politics, world mathematics, world science uh, for generations that we that we don't talk about. Because if we just start with slavery here in America as the genesis of our experiences by people, we're already starting out in a slave mindset. And that's never a really helpful place for us to be because uh, it's much harder to get out of that instead of realizing that we were people that were doing great things that then just happened to become slaves and that there was an intentional process since then to keep us in that posture since our time here in America. In regards to the second question, uh, there's an organization called the Association of Black Psychologists, ABSI, uh, that is uh, rooted in all things African-centered uh, when it comes to psychology. It certainly will be a great space uh, for folks to continue to have and have been having these types of conversations uh, for at least the last 50 or 60 years or so at this point uh, when it comes to the intersection between black folks in psychology. So ABSI is definitely an organization I would encourage you to check out. Okay, so you're active in ABSI? Yeah, well, um, yes. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. so I, I'm a member there, um, but I've spent more of my time on, on the other side because I, I believe that you got to get in um, and, and make a difference uh, where there's less of you, you know, where you mm -hmm. can have influence. Okay. So I actually spent more of my time 
uh, the American Psychological Association. Uh, but I definitely recommend ABCI as uh, as a, an alternative to that. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I'm a, an advocate of uh, participating in organizations, um, especially from graduate school on, because there's so much that you know you you often will not get operating in a field without that connection. Um, going through, particularly a black organization in the field of study you're engaged in, there's usually an entire history there that you know you often don't get taught about in the classroom. So um, this I, is I, exactly I, right. I'm really glad the sister asked that question. It's a powerful one. Um, you have a piece on your blog entitled Goals for Raising Black Sons. And in it, you you lay out the, the goals, you lay out the challenges, the opportunities, the focus, and then you give tools for how to go about it. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Not only the piece itself, but you know the overarching philosophy around raising sons and and where and you know where your work came in in regard to that. Yeah, so um, I'm a, a a product of a, a single parent home, and uh, many of the young men that I work with are products of single parent homes as well. And the challenges uh, that I experience. Uh, from the uh, the mothers and the grandmothers and the great grandmothers that I work with is, well, how do I raise this son uh, in this space where uh, he's he's constantly being dehumanized, uh, where he's oftentimes told that that he's less than, uh, that he's always encouraged to stay within that dumb, deviant, and dangerous context. Um, how do I? What tools do I give him? What affirmation do I give him to let him know that he can be more? That what society is telling him can be that he can be and then how do i combat that knowing that black men learn how to be black men from other black men more so than uh from from black women mm-hmm. and so you know offering tools for those folks and then also just for the the men that have uh, stepped up to assume the role of of mentor or you know uh, someone that can be a, a of help uh, to the black men and males that don't have uh, father figures in their lives. Okay, so, so you're talking really, about everything uh, from like coaches to stepfathers. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes, yes. And so, um, but not all of us have kids and, and not all of us are equipped with the tools, uh, even though I would argue that being a black man and talking with other black males is uh, a meaningful enough experience in and of itself. Uh, but I wrote that piece to give folks the language that they could use to better understand the challenges that their sons are facing as they walk out the door, when they turn on the TV, when they listen to music, when they're reading their schoolwork, when they're doing all of those things, you know, what are some of the challenges that they're facing? Uh, but because I always take a very strengths approach, I always want to talk about what are the what are the strengths that our black males are walking around with that we can capitalize on in order for them to realize the fullest of their humanity. Mm. Now, I'd like to ask a generational question. We only have about eight minutes left, but uh, generationally speaking, one of the things that we're seeing, you know, particular to Generation X and and millennials, but more so with millennials and and Generation Z, I guess they're calling it, uh, is what young black males are doing uh, with their time. So if we talked about, say, video games, for example, um, what does that bring up for you as a professional psychologist? You know, dealing with um, children to ad- adolescents, 
who are engaging in activities that some believe completely withdraw them from social dynamics. Uh, is that something you've seen? And if so, how do you engage that? Yeah, so if we've told black males and they've received enough reinforcement to suggest that being uh, aggressive, uh, that uh, exhibiting their emotions is unsafe for them, uh, then they're going to withdraw, right? They're mm -hmm. going to withdraw in spaces where they can create worlds, where they can be human, where they can um, express themselves however they want to, uh, where they can be their, their fullest selves uh, based on the context. And so that's what we're seeing a lot of is that uh, folks are withdrawn into these spaces to where they can construct a reality that they see as perhaps better than the world, one that exists out here in society. Um, it's better for me to be in a place where uh, I feel in control, where I feel like I have power, than to exist in a space where I don't feel like I have control right. and I don't have power. So it's not just a withdrawal. It, there's some. There's more to it. There, there's more nuance. It's a, it's a coping that. strategy. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a it's a, a coping strategy that our young men and males are using um, to to deal with the realities that is very tough out here. To, to be a black male. And one of the ways that you can deal with it is by creating a world and a space where you can be what you want to be and have the choices that you want to have, um, you know, without having to incur the consequences uh, that exist out here in this space for black males. So how do you recommend parents support that 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 child who's, who may be engaging? And there are a variety of different types of coping mechanisms, right? So if you can talk to us a little bit about what some of those others may be, but then also what do you tell parents who come in and say, well, my child is playing video games, my child is doing this. What do you, what do you kind of help them understand or what do you do? Sure, so I break down this concept of uh, racial socialization. So uh, one of the tasks that we have uh, as black people raising black children is to develop and affirm a coherent sense of black identity. And there's two ways that we went about that at this point. The one is called the legacy approach. And essentially what this does is we just tell our sons and daughters uh, that the world is tough for them, that they're gonna have to work twice as hard to get half as much, that they should just expect to, to be beat down uh, because of the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. But the challenge with that approach is that we don't tell our youth how to cope with those things. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm constantly told that things are going to be tough out here, I don't want to go outside if it's going to be tough like that. I want to be inside where I know I can control the space and the situation. Mm. So I'll for up to parents instead is to I think about this idea of the literacy approach. And what the literacy approach does is it, equips our youth with the skills needed to address the racism and discrimination that exists out in the world. One of the reasons why our youth don't want to step out the door and address all of these messages that we're sharing with them is because they don't feel confident in their ability to address those things and they don't feel centered in who they are as black individuals. But what the literacy approach does is it helps them to accurately assess the challenges in a particular situation to accurately assess their ability to do something about the situation and then to be able to then evaluate that they've actually accomplished their goal in terms of effectively addressing the situation. And like that's a different paradigm, that's a paradigm shift to go from 
kind of offering these anecdotal statements about how tough it is for, for black people out here to mm -hmm. then be able to say, these are the skills that you can use to be able to address those situations. If our young folks felt more confident in their blackness and they felt more confident in their ability to address assaults to their blackness, then they're less likely to, to do the video games or less likely to avoid uh, those types of issues because they'll feel like they can do something about it. Wow. That's powerful. And have you seen uh, progress with that? Have you seen in terms of how kids navigate the social spaces they're in? Uh, we, we've seen progress. Uh, right now we're in the process of, um, of uh, creating the evidence, um, creating the evidence for testing our model of uh, racial trauma treatment uh, for the only uh, racial trauma clinic uh, here in the state of Kentucky. And part of what we do is we teach uh, parents uh, these skills that they then can teach their youth. And then oftentimes we teach the youth these skills uh, as well. And we've seen positive aspects uh, uh, for that thus far. Beautiful. Well, tell us what what does the future for Dr. Niffley look like? What is it that you, you're trying to accomplish? What are some things that you have on the horizon that you'd like to work on? Where Where should we look to see you in the future? Sure. So you should uh, look for me to uh, be all over the country, uh, educating clinicians uh, about how we treat racial trauma in black individuals and uh, really teaching folks uh, the, the model that, that I've developed and that we're implementing. You should also look for me uh, in the space of working with public defenders on how we can best communicate uh, the narrative uh, that many black males are carrying with them as they navigate the criminal justice system and how they can communicate that to judges and prosecutors in a way uh, that can help them to understand better uh, why it is that a black male ended up in that space. Because uh, I'm going all over the country uh, offering those uh, trainings uh, to public defenders as well. So uh, look for me in terms of uh, developing this model and testing it, uh, and then also being out there uh, partnering with our public defenders uh, to be able to best represent um, those black males that have been trapped in the criminal justice system. Beautiful. And very quickly, where can people find you online? Sure. So, so the best place to find me is at my blog, uh, drstephenniffleyjr.com. And it's just the Afrocentric psychologist because I believe uh, that we should always be African-centered as black individuals. Well, I want to thank you for being on the Onyx Report. And, and just a quick note to the people that contacted me about whether or not Dr. Niffley holds classes on how to grow a beard. <laughs> I don't think so. So you can stop writing me about that because the brother's beard is just on point. So it is what it is. But thank you thank for you, being on the Onyx Report, and, and we appreciate it. Look out for us. Um, uh, every first and third Wednesday of each month. So um, it, it, October 2nd, Wednesday, will be our next show. And I hope to uh, hear from you then. Uh, but anyway, thanks for joining the Onyx Report. Peace.